And we're back. Episode 16 of the podcast. Sweet 16. Yes, we are sweet 16. What are we doing to celebrate? We're drinking water. Yes, indeed. Well, I mean, realistically, 16, you should be drinking water. That's right. So today's show, um, we're going to have an Ask the Vet show. Oh, I actually didn't introduce myself today. <laughs> we know who you Welcome are. to the podcast, <laughs> a show all about pets, veterinary medicine, all things animals. I am Dr. Lauren, your host, veterinarian, internal medicine specialist. AKA the tiny vet. Yep. And uh, I'm the tiny man to her right. My name is David. I'm her husband, her hype man, her uh, number one confidant, and I like animals. I like animals. <laughs> Uh, okay, now I can tell you about what the show is on. I forgot what I was doing there for a second. Um, our show this week you think is... think by episode 16 you have an idea, but... Oh, I know. I got really excited. Um, it's an Ask the Vet show, which yes. is great. We I posted on my uh, Instagram page uh, questions that you might have and got a bunch of great questions. And so today we're going to answer those questions for you. Keep the questions coming. It's been amazing to be able to ask Lauren... Um, ask our guests who always have uh, different, you know, information that they're bringing to the table. So keep the questions coming. We love them. Yes, keep the questions coming. And let's talk about some answers, though, first. Mm, yes, indeed. We've got an answer to last episode's trivia question. The question was, which animal has to eat upside down? A flounderfish, a sloth, a vampire bat, or a flamingo? This is kind of a bit of a confusing question because i think flounders kind of have upside down heads to begin with <laughs> but the answer is actually a flamingo which has to use bristles on the top of its beak to filter out mud and water that gets sucked in along with its actual food when it's eating and therefore it has to eat its with its head upside down otherwise it's unable to filter the food properly cool there you go and also a little fun fact is that Flamingos are naturally white, but become pink because of the food that they're eating. That's another yes. thing, too. I'm guessing shrimp. Shrimp. There yes. you go. <laughs> I think we might have used that before. Okay, in the news, this is actually like a very controversial story that I'm just going to bring up. But basically, a Russian tattoo artist, tattoo fanatic, um, dosed his hairless finx cat named Demon up with painkillers. <laughs> to tattoo a series of gangster tattoos on him. And now animal rights activists are shaming him. And his response was, of course I feel pity for doing it to him. It's not like he wanted to do it himself. He has a different skin, so tattoos are applied differently, Alexander said. I hope it's not too bad for him. It's not his first tattoo. Usually he feels fine and recovers from the anesthesia pretty fast. The tattoos feature a prison tower, playing cards, and a cigarette, all things that are typically worn by criminals in Russia. So not only are many people shaming him for tattooing his cat, but... The head of the Animal Rehabilitation Center in Russia, I guess, said that, you know, as is true, sphinxes have very sensitive skin and little injuries can cause them pain and discomfort, not to mention that anesthesia carries a risk in and of itself. And so, um, it, yeah, it just seems like a terrible idea. The The tattoo artist, Alexander Pertov is the last name, um, defended the whole cat tattooing saying it was normal for many years for farmers to tattoo their animals therefore it's no reason for it to be unethical now but like that is total bs like i mean yes we do tattoo 
pets most mo- a lot for of pets identification yeah. purposes. Like their ears get a tattoo. Right. They're under anesthesia usually for another reason, like spaying or neutering, like at the shelter. For mm-hmm. instance, like Jersey, our cat who we lost had an ear tattoo. She was it was for identification purposes, and it was done while she was being spayed. But like tattooing an animal for kind of sucks that it's uh, also all these gangster tattoos like this poor cat is now regardless i mean the type of the tattoo doesn't matter i don't care if it's like like little miss sunshine being tattooed on this cat like <laughs> little seriously though it doesn't matter the nature of that t- the tattoo you're anesthetizing a cat yeah for for no pleasure, reason really. for your own pleasure it has mm-hmm. no say in the matter and then you're doing something to it that's uncomfortable i mean i've been tattooed it's not exactly pleasant and then it's literally has no benefit to that cat. The only thing it has is a negative. Exploitation on Instagram. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So total exploitation. I think the Humane Society or whatever they call the humane organization in Russia should be taking this cat away from this guy. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that woman was right. Sphinxes, like their skin is so Stain, sensitive. Well, allergies, infections mm-hmm. are so common in the breed that, I mean... It's just bizarre to me. Wrong on so many accounts. So many levels. Wrong on so many levels. This guy should not be getting any attention for this. If you're thinking about tattooing your cat, don't, because I will personally come after you. All right. <laughs> and you should see her prison <laughs> tattoos, because she's a scary one. Yeah, you don't know what kind of tattoos I have. I mean, I've got some makeup covering up a teardrop <laughs> on here. <laughs> and animal footprints on her shoulder. She is badass, folks. <gasps> Anyways, yes, controversial. But I don't think it's that controversial because I think no one's going to listen to that and be like, oh, yeah, that's cool. Right. Stupid. Stupid. Well, let's um, shift gears a little bit. I, I always love these Ask the Vet segments. We get so much new knowledge, and I get to chill. So I'm going to ask you some questions, Alan. Are you ready? Yeah, hit me. Okay. So first question comes in, my vet said my dog has elevated liver enzymes on blood work. Should I be worried? And I did forget to write the names field. That was actually, that was Whitney who uh, who wrote in. Okay. Whitney from British Columbia. Um, so elevated liver enzymes on blood work. That's probably, I mean, it's one of the most common reasons why pets are referred is elevated liver enzymes. And they are often found incidentally on blood work, like dogs that, uh, you know, go in because they need a dental cleaning and so they have blood work done or just an annual wellness exam and routine screening. Um, A lot of the time with elevated liver enzymes, they're asymptomatic. And so when a vet looks at elevated liver enzymes, there's two things they're going to consider. The first is which liver enzymes are elevated and the second is the magnitude, so how severely. Very mild elevations in certain liver enzymes, particularly there's one called ALP, mm-hmm. is very common. So I think it's the stats are like 80% of dogs over the age of 8 or 10 years old have mildly elevated ALPs. Very, very common finding on blood work. So your vet, if it's a very mild elevation of ALP, will likely just ignore it, especially if it's the only thing on blood work. However, if other liver enzymes are elevated, um, like ALT or GGT or bilirubin, other liver parameters, concurrently with that, that might be a signal to say, okay, there's something more going on in the liver if multiple of these liver values are elevated, then maybe they might say, okay, the next step is probably going to be to refer for an abdominal ultrasound Mm. to actually look at the liver and say, you know, what does the liver look like? 
Are we seeing any masses? Is it big? Is it small? What is the gallbladder which holds your bile? What does that look like? Does it look like it's filled with like sludge or is it normal looking? So it really depends um, on the which liver enzymes are elevated and the magnitude. Now, of course, even though I mentioned that ALP, a mild elevation, can be normal in older dogs, if that elevation is, you know, above three times the reference range or quite high, that also would warrant further evaluation. And usually the first step is with an abdominal ultrasound. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of the basics of liver enzyme elevations and when you need to be worried. Awesome. Um, I just adopted a cat and she is sneezing like crazy. She also has nasal discharge. Is this an upper respiratory infection? How should I treat it? So upper respiratory infections or URIs are really common in cats. Um, specifically, a lot of cats coming from, you know, high population areas like shelters or catteries. That's where you tend to see these upper respiratory infections. They spread very... have heard of a cattery. What's that? A cattery is basically um, like a, a breeder. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. A cattery. That's like where a lot of cats are bred. And so any of those high population density areas, your uh, upper rep respiratory infections are quite common and they spread super easy from cat to cat. So I don't know if you recall, but Jersey who came from the SPCA, yeah, she would intermittently have these flare ups where she would sneeze quite a bit and her eyes would kind of get crusty. And so sh they can have flare ups, especially caused by stress. Mm -hmm. So anytime a patient is stressed or an animal stressed or even illness, like other illnesses, like if they get sick for another reason, sometimes that might cause these um, upper respiratory infections to flare up. And that's because a lot of them are due to herpes virus, feline herpes virus, which as you know, in people, herpes virus is the common cause of cold sores. And in people, what happens when they get stressed and they have, they cold get cold get, sores. Yeah. So similar thing, it's similar type of virus where it kind of gets flared up. Now, if it's very mild signs, it may be self-limiting. So oftentimes, given time, the patient's signs will resolve. If it is preventing them from like eating because they can't smell their food um, and they're not drinking and they're otherwise unwell, that should probably prompt a visit to your vet. They may have, for instance, like a secondary bacterial infection on top of the virus that they may need antibiotics for. Um, and in severe cases, it doesn't always mean an upper respiratory infection. You know, if you have a cat that's, let's say, seven years old and isn't really a chronic sneezer or a chronic respiratory cat that suddenly developed nasal discharge, sneezing, that could be something else entirely going on. Maybe they have inhaled something into their nose, like a foreign body. Maybe they have a tumor in their nose that's mm. causing that. Um, you know, maybe it's a different type of infection. So definitely it depends. You know, if you have a young cat that you just adopted that's sneezing, I think fair enough, see how it goes. If they're still eating and drinking, it's probably fine to wait it out. But if they are getting quite sick, not eating, that should be a time where you bring them into your vet. Awesome. Um, do you have any tips on managing a dog with chronic kidney disease? So chronic, that's hard because um, chronic kidney disease is a very common disease in both dogs and cats. It's basically just um, as patients get older, their kidneys, they lose a lot of the functioning ability of their kidneys. And eventually um, that, that can cause them to go into kidney failure where their kidney values go up on blood work. And there are various different stages of kidney disease. So anything from just, you know, elevated on uh, mildly elevated kidney enzymes on blood work with no clinical signs, still eating, drinking completely fine to, you know, much more severe elevated kidney values and it's affecting 
their appetite. They might be nauseous. They might be lethargic. And so managing a dog with kidney disease really depends on their stage of disease. And so when we talk about staging kidney disease in dogs and cats, we use a very standard scale. It's called the IRIS scale. International Renal Interest Society is what IRIS stands for. Okay. And we'll basically, just, we'll just call it iris. iris. Yeah. And so it stages um, patients based on the level of kidney enzyme elevations and also other factors that we know affect prognosis for dogs and cats with kidney disease. And those two factors are blood pressure. So whether or not they have high blood pressure, which is a common consequence of kidney disease. And the other factor is losing protein into the urine, which is another complication of kidney disease that can cause it to progress more rapidly. Both of those other factors um, have been shown to affect prognosis. And so we stage kidney disease based on this scale. And then depending on what stage they are, there's very specific recommendations and how to manage them. So whereas in an early stage, like stage two, there's four main stages. So in stage two, it may be as simple as just feeding your dog a kidney diet, which is restricted in protein and phosphorus and supplemented with various other factors. Whereas in later stages, we're doing things like supplementing potassium or giving them binders for phosphorus to lower their phosphorus levels or giving them fluids under their skin to help them feel better and anti-nausea medication. So it really is a huge range. And that's why it's nice to have a very objective measure like that iris scale for us to be able to make recommendations based on. And that um, those recommendations are all fact-based. Um, so they're all based on studies that have shown at each stage what can impact prognosis and survival. Okay. That's so, very so yeah. So if you have, it's really important to talk to your vet about, you know, the stage of kidney disease and the particular concerns because every patient with kidney disease is so different, especially depending on how long it takes for them to be- develop. I have dogs that have you know, really high kidney values that you would expect to be feeling quite crummy um, that are fine. And then you have dogs that have mildly elevated kidney values that feel quite sick because it might have come on much more suddenly. So uh, to me, every patient with kidney disease is an individual. And I use those guidelines, but you have to look at it in the face of the patient that is in front of you. Gotcha. Here's a question, changing gears a little bit, about teeth, pet's teeth. And how do you know if your pet's teeth are healthy. Yeah, so dental disease, um, if you haven't listened to our previous podcast where we talked to Dr. Angie Bebel, she's a board-certified dentist. I believe it may have been our first podcast, second? Yeah, second maybe. Um, But periodontal disease, which describes the um, infection of the teeth, so dental tartar, and then the inflammation that is a result of that is one of the most common causes of um, disease in dogs and cats. And so, I mean, part of it is looking at your pet's teeth. Do you see tartar? Do you see inflammation along their gum lines, that kind of red line? Um, if you see tartar, there's dental disease there. Mm. I mean, that's the bottom line. If you see that buildup, that kind of darkening, there's dental disease present. If their breath stinks, there's dental disease present. So I would say that on average, and unless you're brushing your dog's teeth every single day, and even if you are, especially smaller dogs and cats, like they're very prone to dental disease. By the time a dog is two years old, most of them have some degree of 
periodontal disease. Seeing it in Freddie. Yeah, and so Freddie is um, three now, and he probably needs to go in. We don't brush his teeth regularly because he's a little. <laughs> but uh, he probably needs to go in for his first dental. Might he cleaning. might like it because it's kind of it'll taste good. Maybe so De- uh, Joey just had. I mean, Joey now he's ten. He gets an annual dental cleaning um, where you know his teeth are. Uh, you know he goes under general anesthesia because ninety percent of the disease is below the gum line. So you really need to you can't get, get in there. But you would would you recommend brushing your teeth regularly? Definitely. I mean, I think any any new pet owner specifically, if you can get them used to it early enough, um, you know, brushing your dog's teeth daily is a great way to uh, prevent, uh, you know, the need for dentals sooner. I mean, at some point, even if you brush your teeth daily, just like with people, I brush my teeth twice a day and I floss every day and I still need to go in every six months for a proper dental scaling. So animals are no different. Right. You know, animals still need to go in and get their teeth actually even if you brush them every day they still need to go in and get proper dental but let's not uh recommend that we are brushing our pet's teeth with crest or aquafresh or if you're using um use pet specific toothpaste so uh sometimes you can get them they there are mint flavored ones but you uh most dogs why would a dog want a mint one when they can get a bacon flavor yeah chicken or bacon but be careful if your dog has allergies because still still affects it so yeah i think i mean i think that's probably all the time we have for questions unless there's a oh there's a quick there's a burning question yeah which was coming in from one of your fans how do you have the energy to do everything you do (laughs) (laughs) i don't Um, yeah, it's, I mean, I definitely, you know, between work and social media and the podcast, it's a lot, but, you know, I think you make time for the things that you enjoy, um, you know, your side and hustle. You don't, and you don't spend a lot of time with me, so. <laughs> yeah, I do. That's why I have you as my co-host. That's <laughs> why I pitched you as my co-host. <laughs> Just um, but yeah, it's, uh, thanks for the fan. Thanks for the words of encouragement out there, but, uh, it's a struggle. The struggle is real. <laughs> All righty. That was it for Ask the Vet. Keep sending us your questions because, I mean, I love answering that. It's easy for me to answer those questions, and hopefully it helps, um, you know, just get a better grasp on things for you. Absolutely. Well, let's uh, get ready to wrap this up. And that said, we are going to jump into our trivia yeah, question we come back. of the week. Um, don't don't jump into it yet. We oh, need to yeah. take a little break here, but I'm exhausted. <laughs> when we come back. We will be doing some trivia. We're back and wrapping up this short but sweet episode with a little bit of trivia. I think it's my turn to ask. You can ask. You can ask. You were about to ask it. I was going. I mean, I was going to. David thinks he's like got the trivia on lockdown. Like. I sometimes want to ask trivia. Yeah, well, your hair is a mess in the back, so. (laughs) (laughs) I did ask, I did talk a lot this episode, so maybe you should talk. Yeah, it's okay. You can talk. Thanks for the permission, (laughs) boss. (laughs) What is the only animal that can't jump? Is it a red panda, a giant panda, an elephant, or an ostrich? Red panda, giant panda, elephant, or ostrich. Those are your options, peeps. Let us know what you think. We'll answer it on our next episode. And I guess that's it for today. Great episode. Thanks a lot for, for sharing some of that uh, information about kidney disease, liver disease, really. I'm a wealth of knowledge. Wealth of knowledge. <laughs> 
amazing. Um, so that's it. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast uh, wherever you download. Follow us actually on YouTube, Instagram at Podcast TV. Make sure to sign up for that. We uh, post lots of little clips and fun animal stuff and uh, all the updates about when episodes are being released on there. So at Podcast TV is our Instagram. Um, until next week, I am Dr. Lauren. I'm David. And, and this, this is, is the, the podcast. podcast. <laughs> that was pretty good. That was a good one.